Hey everybody, welcome to Open Door Philosophy, a podcast about philosophy, made accessible for listeners. I'm Andrew's former philosophy teacher, Derek Parsons. And I'm Mr. Parsons' former philosophy student, Andrew Graziano. Welcome to episode 30, where we conclude our series on Stoic thinkers with the slave who would become a Stoic master, Epictetus. But first, Mr. Parsons, it's been two weeks. How are you doing? I'm dying. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Although if I were, Epictetus would tell me not to worry about it. <laughs> no, all is well. It is uh, the last four weeks of the school year, so, you know, it's just insanity time. But all is well, you know. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll skip school stuff and go straight to the garden. This last week, oh, sorry, not this last week, uh, yesterday, we had four monarch butterfly chrysalises open yesterday, so four new monarchs in the world. So that's kind of cool. We've had like, I don't know, 12 or 15 chrysalises around the backyard the last couple of weeks. Wow. And uh, it's just neat to watch that process. So anyway, uh, it's spring. It's lovely outside. How are you? I'm good. I thought when you were saying uh, you're skipping skipping school stuff, I was like, oh, you're skipping school to go gardening. It's like, wow, <laughs> that's that's very uh, that's very interesting. Yeah, I'm not sure there's a lot of students that skip school to do some gardening. <laughs> but maybe, I don't know. Probably. Pro- like, I just got to escape the construct of school so I can get out there in the world and garden. <laughs> probably not too many people. Probably not. But yeah, it's been super, super nice outside. Yesterday, I was talking to one of my friends. It was like 80 degrees outside. He's like, this is way too hot. I'm like, no, this is absolutely perfect outside. And so it was really nice. I've been, we, we just finished classes uh, two days ago. So right before this podcast, when this podcast comes out, I'll be done with school, I think. Huzzah. Yeah. That's yeah, right. That'll be crazy. So I've just been kind of relaxing before I start uh, throwing myself into final papers and stuff. And, you know, it's exciting. Year three is almost done. Yeah. How many papers do you have due next week? I have four papers due next week, so it'll be fun. uh, What's the length of those papers? They're all about, uh, I'd say, I think they're all about 12 pages each, so it's not not too bad. It's not awful. That's a lot of words. (laughs) It's a lot of ink. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun. This has definitely been my favorite semester. Good. So it's not like it's anything bad. All these papers are kind of kind of fun, kind of fun and enjoyable. Oh man, you know your uh, what's the word I want to use? You know your uh, academic. How about that? When you enjoy <laughs> writing papers, <laughs> it's not bad. I'd rather do this than a exam. On last Thursday night and on Friday morning, I had two exams back to back. It was not fun. So for everybody who has to take a lot of tests, including your IB students in a few weeks and all those other IB students who might be listening and AP students too. I do not envy any of y'all in the slightest. So yeah, I'd rather write a paper than take a test any day. Yeah. For uh, sure. And even better if, uh, and if it has to be a test or a written test is better than something like multiple choice. Yeah. So <laughs> Okay. Do you get a lot of multiple choice in college? I haven't had a multiple choice test in college. Probably maybe Maybe like a section of one like test. Freshman year. Maybe freshman year, but never, never since that. Well, good. <laughs> That's a better way to assess students. I wonder how Epictetus would feel about multiple choice. Probably, probably not that great. 
That's right. Well, as a nice segue uh, of the three Stoics that we have looked at, Epictetus is the teacher of the three of them. He is the head of a school of Stoicism. So uh, we can get into the episode and see what old Epictetus has to say. Do you want to introduce them? Uh, sure. You're the teacher, so okay. I will. Uh, you're you're following in the footsteps of uh, Epictetus. Of Epictetus. Okay. Well, he's a harsher master than I am, <laughs> but I'll do it. All right, everyone. So we hope you've enjoyed the series on Stoic thinkers. There are many other Stoic thinkers out there, and we'll probably reference them in this episode. But this is the last of what we call the big three. And not last in terms of chronology. We've studied them out of order because we wanted to celebrate Marcus Aurelius on his birthday. So today is Epictetus. And Epictetus lived very similar uh, just before Marcus Aurelius. But also, in fact, they were contemporaries for a while, but also was a bit contemporary on the latter end of uh, Seneca's life. So we're not exactly sure of the dates, but this is pretty close. Epictetus lived roughly from 86 to 160. One of the things that makes Epictetus very different from the other two is the fact that, one, we already mentioned it, he was a teacher. Two, that he does not come from an aristocratic background, but rather he was a slave. And three, his works are not written by him. His works are written down by his former students from his lectures, his classes that he gave. So he didn't actually write his materials as Seneca and, of course, Marcus Aurelius did. So that makes Epictetus different in a way, and we'll talk more about all of those things. I think one very interesting thing is, like you were mentioning, he's kind of connected to both Marcus Aurelius and uh, and Seneca too. I don't know if this is true. I'm just guessing it is. I wasn't there. But Epic, apparently Epictetus was a slave to one of the, I guess, courtiers in uh, Nero's court. And then apparently too, Epictetus, it's very unclear about how he became so educated um, mm. except that we know that he studied for a time under Musonius Rufus, who's a very famous Roman Stoic philosopher and, and teacher as well. And he was also a senator in Rome uh, at some time too. And then after, you know, somehow after Epictetus gained his freedom, he began teaching Stoic philosophy, uh, which is really interesting. And it's, it's a di- very different contrast from the upbringings of the other two Stoic thinkers that we've seen with Marcus Aurelius being kind of groomed since his birth. Uh, Like we talked about in the last episode, there was a time when uh, Marcus Aurelius as a young kid had kind of like a Stoic tutor teaching him and and sleeping. Marcus Aurelius was adopting these habits early on. And uh, Seneca, I don't think we talked too much about his education, but he was also extremely wealthy. But Epictetus, you know, man, like he's a slave. Uh, really having a rough time. So it's definitely one thing to take advice from about living through hard times from some of the wealthiest people in Rome. And it's another to take them from uh, someone who's a literal slave telling you not to worry about your problems. So Epictetus is a, is a tough master, right? <laughs> of, the, of the three, he is just really straightforward and in your face. And if you think the other ones were, I mean, like he just doesn't take any crap from anybody. 
Um, <laughs> there, there are no excuses from a student with him. I mean, he's been a slave. So everything he's just like, well, just get over it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Actually, pull a quote here. The uh, uh, So I, we have a lot to talk about. I don't know how we're going to fit it all in, how it's going to go, but we'll just bounce around, you know. So speaking tough to his students, there's this one quote. He has a lot of quotes that I think are funny. And this kind of comes out in the dialogues because it's more conversational than, say, like something that's formally written. So he's very sassy at some points. Anyway, there's a conversation between him and a student. Student says, but my nose is running. And uh, Epictetus says, what do you have hands for, you idiot, if not to wipe it? (laughs) And then then he says, but how is it right that there be running noses in the first place? And Epictetus says, instead of thinking up protest, wouldn't it just be easier to wipe your nose? So, <laughs> so he doesn't take any crap, right? Yeah, that's there, very there's funny. no excuses from the students because he was a slave. But I do want to talk about his his slavery because I, I don't want to give the wrong image of him. It's not like he was out in like the hard fields, like digging holes and moving rocks and all this kind of stuff. Like you said, his master, and I'm really going to um, pronounce this poorly. His master was. Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus. There we go. His master was Epaphroditus, who was also a former slave himself. But after, like you mentioned, Andrew, after he gained manumission, he became the he became Nero's secretary in charge of petitions. And then after Nero, uh, st- well, <laughs> I was going to say stepped aside. <laughs> after Nero died, then Domitian came in and he served Domitian in the same capacity. So Epictetus was a slave, yes, but he was a slave in Rome to a person who was involved in the royal court. So while he didn't have freedom, as we define it when we think of slaves, he certainly wasn't out in some far-off province working his body to death day and night. But that's about all we know. Um, there's very little that we know about Epictetus compared to the other two philosophers, Stoic mm. thinkers that that we've that we've talked about. Let me jump in real quick while we're while we're on the topic, and let's first talk about uh, Epictetus's name, which in Greek means literally like acquired. But um, in the context of history at the time, it would have meant something more like something about property. There's this famous book by Plato called The Laws, where he uses uh, the word Epictetus to denote something that's added to one's like property. So his it's not like he's having a cool name. Uh, his his name is basically slave. It shows you something about his, his identity too. Um, if someone's just walking around with the name slave, uh, I think that kind of adds to, adds to Epictetus's persona, mm-hmm. as we'll kind of see later. And then there's this uh, story about him as a kid, which I think has been especially disputed, but I think it still serves to paint Epictetus as who he might be, regardless of its, whether it's true or not. But apparently, if you, ever, if you look up a picture of Epictetus on the internet, uh, there's this famous, I think it's an engraving, and oh, it's an impression, I'm sorry. And basically, it's him writing... Uh, pondering, but he has like a crotch or a cane in the background. And this story describes how he, why people portray them with that cane. And basically one day his master, I'll, I'll, I'll quote this so, so I won't mess it up. 
quoting, one day his tyrannical master had locked his foot in a steel boot, his, in this case, is Epictetus, and twisted his leg to make him scream. Epictetus was simply warning him, you're going to break my leg. Then his master continued and the leg broke. Epictetus peacefully said, I told you, it's now broken. Yeah, that's wild. Absolutely wild. So it's it, that's just speaking to Epictetus. First off, he's really embodying this principle of Stoicism, which is something we've kind of been talking about the last two episodes. It's like, yeah, these Stoics are, are embodying their principles, and Epictetus probably more than more than others, or, or or maybe a little bit more than others. And and secondly, you know, it's just showing you Epictetus can master his own body in a way that other Stoics too probably haven't haven't had to deal with. And also, he's being pushed around too from a young age, uh, and he's having some some scars to deal with that into old age too. Yeah, it is. It was interesting. So I actually wanted to bring up the limp. So he's noted as having, or at least I've heard from a lot of contemporary commentators on Stoicism, they always refer to Epictetus as having a limp. And so I always just assumed that was true. And of course, the story that you just told, I've heard before as well. One of the references I was reading on his life and background, the Penguin's classic introduction does not say that he has a limp. It does say that in the discourses, Epictetus refers to himself as a lame mm. old man, but never never elaborates on the cause or the type of disability that he has. And then it also says, I think it's interesting too, it also says, when speaking of his former master, you know, he mentions that he had a former master and by name, but never speaks ill of him uh, or ne- or positively either. But like with this story you just told, I mean, clearly you would think that's probably rather harsh treatment from from a slave master. Uh, so that's just interesting. I, I think it's I think it's interesting when we get these different perspectives on people from antiquity, especially when there's just not a whole lot written about their lives um, other than what's provided the the text itself, like from the discourses. No, for sure. That's that's that is really interesting. I, I've. I've not heard that. I've heard that he had a dis- might have had a disability, but I've never, never heard that. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, huh? And I guess the other thing to say, well, regarding his slavery, he was born into slavery, mm. um, so he was not captured as like a prisoner of war or anything like that. He was born into slavery in the city of Hierapolis, I think, if I'm saying that right, which is today in like southwestern Turkey. And I thought this was mm. interesting. You might be able to follow up on this since you know a little bit about Greek. Uh, the area spoke common Greek, mm. and I don't know how to say the word. It's K-O-I-N-E. Koine. Koine. So the area spoke Koine. He spoke Koine. And the discourses, which are his lectures, those are written in Koine. And I also just found out that uh, the Greek New Testament was also written in that particular style of Greek. So I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. So, so he was born in what is today Turkey and spoke that particular dialect of Greek. If we take like a straight line down kind of half of the Roman Empire, if we think about kind of Western and Eastern Rome, how that will split later, the Western side predominantly spoke and wrote in Latin, and the Eastern side predominantly spoke in uh, Greek. So that's why we'll see a lot of writings even under uh, Roman in, in Koine Greek. Now Koine Greek is just, we think about the Greek language, how it's kind of evolved. There's the Homeric Greek that's 
kind of the first. And then that transitions into Attic Greek, which is the language that's used in uh, Plato and Aristotle. And as that language keeps transforming, that eventually will become Koine Greek, which is New Testament Greek. Um, I believe Marcus Aurelius's Meditations is written in Koine Greek too. And I read that that Koine Greek really arose during the time of Hellenism, like that post classical yeah, Greek era. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Greek is just a really interesting language because it's always evolving. It's it's always changing. It's always becoming a little bit simpler. And so it's it's slightly different, not that not crazily different, but slightly different. Yeah. But I guess the last thing to say about his slavery is, is like you said, we don't know how he was educated. We do know that he was educated at some point, and the and the way that we assume that he was educated is that, and I don't know how unique of a situation this was, but his master would allow him to tend the lectures of Masonius Rufus, who you mentioned earlier. Now, Masonius Rufus at the time was really just regarded as uh, possibly the, the the best Stoic teacher uh, of the time period. So, him being able to freely attend those lectures. Uh, that's really interesting and, and no doubt like instrumental in the formation of Epictetus and his thoughts on Stoicism. But it does make me want to mention one more time that there are so many other Stoics that you can uh, reference their writing. We've mentioned them throughout, everyone from Zeno to Chrysippus to Masonius Rufus to, oh gosh, who was, who was Marcus Aurelius' teacher? Rusticus. So there are so many other Stoics out there to reference. But anyway, Masonius Rufus was a big one, and Epictetus was allowed to attend his lectures. I don't know if that says anything about his master in terms of how he treated him. It's all conjecture. We just know that he was allowed to to attend those lectures. Yeah. Slavery in the Mediterranean world is very different than uh, what a lot of a lot of people today might think about it. It was a very much an asset to have slaves educated, and you see a lot of famous Roman people that have their slaves educated and they kind of use them as a tool for their political studies. Cicero's famous for having this uh, slave named Tiro, who is actually the father of shorthand, which is really crazy. So slaves slaves back then, like you mentioned earlier, it's a little bit different and it's it, it, it was probably a big asset to have slaves educated, especially for these very, noble is not the right word, but very... Uh, Aristocrats. Aristocrats, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so he was a slave. Well, well, he does eventually get his freedom, and we don't know exactly when he gets that freedom, but after he does, he devotes his life to teaching and practicing philosophy, and it really took a turn during Domitian's reign. I always think this is interesting. It must have been quite an event, I suppose. Domitian thought that philosophers were sort of trying to subvert his power. <laughs> he would call them republicanists, yeah. being that uh, that they supported the republican model rather than the empire model. And so he banishes, I think it was in 95 AD, he banishes all the philosophers from yeah. Italy. And, uh, and, and this is where Epictetus leaves and goes to Nicopolis. I think I'm, I'm saying that right which is a, a Greek city-state on the southern coast of Greece. And this is where he founds his, his school of philosophy, of Stoicism. So do you know anything about that Domitian situation? I don't. I don't, I don't know anything about that at all. Um, I think that's interesting because it's like, once again, we see these philosophers being uh, expunged from, 
from society are trying to. It's just such a, it's such like a stereotype or stereotypes, not even the right word, but I'll go with it. Such a stereotype throughout history that philosophers are being removed from their society because of what they're thinking. I'm just thinking of, of Plato right now too, where he's always saying philosophers will never be allowed to be part of society. So that's what that's what I'm thinking about. Philosophers are either really in vogue, you know, people really value them because they're wisdom, or they're uh, you know exiled uh, because they're dangerous. And you know, it's it's kind of a double edged sword there with them. If you're going to have someone who's wise and you're going to value their wisdom, they're going to ask hard questions. And sometimes hard questions can get you in trouble, depending on what your answer is to those questions. So yeah, I mean, of course, the death of Socrates. And and the other thing this illustrates, if we don't know anything else really about it, it does illustrate, again, the power that emperors yeah. had. Here we are, we're going to just banish mm -hmm. all of the philosophers. I, I wonder, like, from a practical standpoint, like, how they identified philosophers, like, what was the criteria? Um, yeah. And like, what does expulsion mean? Like, did, like, were they provided any, here's some money, go live somewhere else. It was just like, get out or we will kill you. I mean, like, I don't know. It's just kind of interesting to think about. I just searched this up. Um, apparently it was philosophers. It was actors too. He forbid my moms to appear in public. And apparently ah. Epictetus said that, uh, which probably was the cause of this controversy or the expulsion. Uh, Epictetus remarked that philosophers were able to look tyrants steadily in the face. <laughs> well, you know, whether it's SNL or, or anything <laughs> else, um, the, the theater arts have always had an uneasy relationship with government mm -hmm. uh, individuals, mm -hmm. government leaders, because they criticize them so heavily, whether it's the you know, Aristophanes from classical Greece or even the Middle Ages where you had the, the traveling minstrels and circuses that would you know, have puppet shows and, and mock the political leaders of the day, or in Venice during that time yeah. period. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. funny. The mimes, what happened <laughs> to the mimes? <laughs> like, like, how dangerous <laughs> were the mimes? Were they like, I can't get out of this box that Domitian Domitian has created for society. Yeah, I can't. I can't really like when I think of a mime. I always think of like a French person, you know, with a the oh, sure. a beret. I can't imagine like yeah, you yeah. know, like a, a Roman back then uh, with that same outfit. Well, actually, I'm thinking a a, a mime in the traditional French outfit with the yeah, that's what I'm thinking and of too. In the painted face in ancient Rome, actually, really kind of cracks yeah. me up. Um, <laughs> Like here he is in front of the Colosseum doing his little <laughs> box thing. And like all these Roman soldiers are like, I'm going to kill this guy. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, <laughs> like the, the mime like walking down the fake stairs and, and throwing a rope around somebody. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how dangerous could they have been? Oh, well. Philosophers weren't always out of favor. So the next emperor that comes along which is, well, I don't know if he's the next emperor, I'd have to look it up, but Hadrian, the emperor Hadrian, who we've mentioned before, the Stoic series, Hadrian was really super impressed with Epictetus. And so he not only, he, uh, he honors Epictetus' school that he's founded with an actual personal mm -hmm. visit to Epictetus' school. So, you know, you got one emperor who exiles the philosophers, you have this next emperor, Hadrian, who thinks Epictetus, his reputation is so renowned that he has to actually go and pay a personal visit to honor him um, for the school that he's founded. So all that's just really, really fascinating. Apparently, 
During Hadrian's first day in Greece, right before he became emperor, he attended one of the lectures of Epictetus. So, oh, very, very, very interesting. Like we kind of, t- I think we've talked about in previous lectures, Hadrian was a, a friend to philosophers. He has the famous, I think he's the first Roman emperor to have a, a philosopher beard in his very regulated bust. Mm. And it wasn't, he was, he was just a That's big right. fan of, of Roman and Greek philosophy. So it's funny. It makes me think, I can't pull the quote right now, but I remember looking through discourses this last week and Epictetus has this little section where he's talking about beards <laughs> um, and, and how great they are. Yeah. <laughs> just yeah. random. Uh, and that's, that's the fun thing about Epictetus. You'll find these like weird little off topic sort of things in his discourses where now he's talking about beards <laughs> and how great they are, which makes him very different than Marcus Aurelius where you just have these aphoristic yeah. statements. So his discourses, there's a number of uh, common themes, which probably is not surprising. This isn't all of them, but but here's just a couple of them just really quickly. First is the idea that the Stoic school leaves us free to live our lives, which is not really a free will argument, and he doesn't really get into free will mm. too heavily. But nonetheless, uh, Stoicism leaves us free to live our own lives. And you might think about that in terms of his former slavery as well, uh, his status as a slave. Another big word that he uses often, and we don't see it as much in Seneca and Marcus Aurelius, is the term impressions, Hmm. right? So everything we experience is an impression, and how we react to that impression is really the Stoic practice. So if you read Epictetus, you'll hear impressions an awful lot. You know, he says things like animals have impressions too, but they don't have the ability to reason about impressions. Uh, We as human beings have the ability to shape mental events, right? Shape how we react to the impressions, whereas, whereas animals don't. Another one, we'll probably see this in some of the quotes, but Epictetus was a huge fan of Socrates. Mm. He mentioned Socrates consistently throughout the discourses and all the schools that pop up during the Hellenistic period try to tie themselves back to Socrates somehow. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like their founder of yep. their school. But Epictetus is a big fan. So if you read him, you'll hear a lot of Socrates. Uh, and I guess the last thing to say, again, like I said, there's more. But he really believes that humans are capable of moral progress, right? That we can make sense of and distinguish between degrees of vices and virtues, and all that links back to impressions. So those are just kind of some overarching themes that we see through the discourses and his other book. Well, I don't know if I call it a book. Yeah. His other collection of works called the Enchiridion. Oh boy. What is, do you know what that means in Greek? I can't remember. I do not. Let me see. Yeah. I was going to say, look it up. it's something like handbook yeah, or something. It like means that. handbook. So, so we'll talk about both of those today. Probably quotes from both of those, the discourses and the Enchiridion. Um, the Enchiridion is short and and used more frequently, or rather referenced more frequently because it's just shorter. And you have these sort of aphoristic statements similar to Marcus Aurelius. But anyway, so as far as like broad influence, just real quickly, like Marcus Aurelius mentions in book one of Meditations that he has a copy of Epictetus's Discourses. So they were kind of contemporaries of each other. They didn't know each other, certainly. One was in Greece and one was in Italy. So we see some influence there from Marcus Aurelius. He was one, Epictetus is one of the few pagan authors that was approved for reading in the early church by the monks and by the priests. 
um, which is very interesting. And you can kind of see some of that influence. Uh, the Enchiridion was adapted for monastic use, and not only in, in the Roman Catholic Church, but in the Eastern Orthodox as well. The first printed edition, Andrew will appreciate this, <laughs> the first uh, printed edition of Discourses was in Venice in 1535 during the Renaissance period and has remained in print ever mm. since. So it's never gone out of print and certainly influential in a lot of other later philosophers, uh, Pascal, yeah. uh, Descartes, like a lot of Descartes' meditations are very are very stoic or at least um, Epictetan in a way. So anyway, there's some some comments on that. I remember when when I was reading about Epictetus the first time I heard about um, James Stockdale. Are you f- mm. familiar with him? Oh, yeah. yeah Basically, James Stockdale was this fighter pilot in the Vietnam War who studied philosophy when he was a, in a graduate program at Stanford. And Stockdale, he was studying Epictetus a lot uh, when he was in school, and he says that well, Stockdale was shot down when he was in the Vietnam War. He spent four years in solitary confinement and was tortured. And he basically credits Epictetus for helping him get through that all. And apparently, when he was being shot down and, like, I guess, parachuting out or whatever, he apparently told himself, I'm leaving the world of technology and entering the world of Epictetus. Oh, wow. It's crazy. So, it is. It's just a very cool example of how Epictetus has um, been a part of people's lives in in a practical way for a crazy, crazy long time. Like I said earlier, all all three of these Stoics we've talked about really approach or or rather write differently. And Epictetus is kind of as grounded in sort of common experience and his discourses are appealing because it's it's so conversational Mm -hmm. versus Seneca's very formal type of writing and versus Marcus Aurelius, who provides no context for any of his his aphoristic statements, uh, Epictetus feels more fleshed out and and probably more appealing to uh, to some people. And you really get a sense of personality from him. Like I said, with, with a lot of those LOL quotes uh, that I that I like in the discourses. So, yeah, yeah, really cool stuff. Really cool stuff. That's the sound of money. Fresh printed. Hey Andrew, you're in college. Uh, are toga parties a thing? Uh, I think I think so. I think they are a thing. Yeah. Like, wait, like it's not just something from popular culture, from like Animal House <laughs> or something. Like toga parties at college actually happen. Is that, I I feel like they don't. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's American myth. No, I I, th- I think they do. I think they do. It it's a a happy day for uh, the classics department at school. Last day of classes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I bet. I bet. Well, let me tell you, if you Andrew, we're ever in need of a toga. The Epictetus cosplay shop has got you covered. That's right. A little known fact about Epictetus is that his love and admiration of Socrates went so far that he even wanted to wear the exact same kind of toga. Uh, that's that's kind of weird. But hey, you know, we like to talk about origin stories here on the pod. So how did this love of Socrates uh, morph into a business for Epictetus? Yeah. So like I said, Epictetus wanted a toga just like the one Socrates wore. He did all this research on Wikipedia and Plato, Stanford Encyclopedia, and was able to produce one, and then discovered there was a market for his idea, uh, and he was pitching it to Shark Tank uh, and all that stuff, and 
there's a market for it. Other people wanted to wear the outfits that other really famous people wore. So he founded a store that makes replica togas of great thinkers, as well as many other costumes. Oh, yeah. You got a big funeral oration coming up and want to emulate Pericles? You can wear his toga. Want to booze it up with the boys and have your own symposium? Why not don Plato's toga for the event? But it's not all togas in the Epictetus cosplay shop. Heck no. Got a big LARPing event coming up and want to look the part of a mage? Heading to your favorite Comic-Con and want to pull off an authentic Master Chief from Halo? Epictetus has got you covered. You know that famous statue of George Washington in a toga that's currently in the Smithsonian? I heard he got the toga he used to pose in that for sculpture from the Epictetus cosplay shop? Huh. Well, there you have it. Located in the Agora of the Nacopolis but they ship internationally. Thank you to the Epictetus Cosplay Shop for sponsoring us today. That's right. And thank you all of our wonderful, wonderful listeners for always tuning in and engaging with us and passing on Open Door Philosophy to your friends and including it in your social media. All of that helps just the uptick of uh, where Open Door Philosophy pops up in search results and recommendations for other people. So that is how you can uh, sponsor us by doing all of those things. Thanks so much. And now back to the show. Alrighty, guys. Well, there are so many things that we can talk about from the discourses and the Enchiridion. There's just so much to it. We've pulled a couple specific quotes uh, that exemplify some of the typical Stoic virtues. So we'll talk about those and do a little analysis of them and, uh, and have a good time. So, if you guys recall, I think it was maybe the first episode in the Stoic series, I mentioned Cicero and his example of firing the arrow at the target and what you're in control of and what you're not in control of. So Epictetus has a lot of quotes about what you're in control of and not in control of. And this one, you know, there's a very famous one from the Enchiridion, which we'll probably read later, but I wanted to use this one because it's not as well known. It's an example of him going on a voyage or not him going on a voyage, but what it would be like. So anyway, it says here, this is book two, chapter five. It's something like going on an ocean voyage. What can I do? Pick the captain, the boat, the date, and the best time to sail. But then a storm hits. Well, it's no longer my business. I have done everything I could. It's somebody else's problem now, namely the captain's. But the boat is actually begins to sink. What are my options? I do the only thing I am in a position to do, drown, but fearlessly without bawling or crying out to God, because I know that what is born must also die. I am not father time. I'm a human being, a part of the whole, like an hour in the day, like the hour I must abide my time and like the hour pass. What difference does it make whether I go by drowning or disease? I have to go somehow. So it's a good example of uh, what you're in control of and what you're not. And just like the arrow example, you can be in control of uh, how much you practice and how good your equipment is and uh, how well you aim. But once you've taken care of all those things, most of it's out of your control. And so similar to the boat example, you can pick the boat, you can pick the best captain, you can pick all the best stuff, when to go, but you don't control the weather and you can't really know it, even with all of our modern technology today. So there we go. Uh, things that are in your control and are not. Should we be so flippant about death, Andrew? Yeah, I think Epictetus would firmly say we shouldn't worry about death because, you know, that's not something in our control. And I think, I think Epictetus here does something really 
Well, maybe it's probably apparent in Seneca and in Marcus Aurelius too, but I think it's it's most uh, visible here or in Epictetus, maybe not just in this quote, but it's like a big thing about Stoic Stoicism is is focusing on things that you can and can't control, like like we've seen in this little quote. Mm-hmm. And mostly I think, at least when I think about Stoic philosophy in that regard, it's like mainly focusing on things you can't control and not worrying about those. So things like death, the weather, if my goldfish will be stale when I buy them from the store. Mm. Uh, but I think in, in Epictetus too, there's this sense of, there's also things you can control too. We have choices that we can make, and those choices that we can make are important to us as human beings. And the fact that we can make these choices, that's something that's very unique to human beings, that we can make choices by ourselves without that aren't impeded by nature. I think Epictetus says, our free choices are those that are completely unimpeded by nature. So I think this is this is has two things. First, before I forget it, because it was slipping my mind, the choice to worry about something that you have control over and not control over is a choice in itself. And I'll mm-hmm. come back to this in a second, because I think it'll make more sense. But it's also like, this ability for us to even have the ability to choose how we react to things and just choice at all, free choice, that's just this very human property that we have. It's unique to human being. That's just something that's so fundamentally unique to human. A dog's not going to have that sense of choice, a cat, uh, anything else. So that's a, a gift of human reason. And I think Epictetus would say, or he might say this, uh, a Stoic definitely says this, but it's like, Humans, when they're worrying about things that they're not in their control, that's a very human thing to do. Do you see a dog lying down on the street and worrying about crying his eyes out about the next time that he's going to get like a a rub from a human being or a a cat when the next time he's going to be able to step in a litter box? That's a human choice that we're making. And it's something that's free and within our control to decide or not to decide to do. And I think that's all I had to say. Yeah, and that gets us to impressions. This comes up so many different times in different ways with Epictetus, but from book one, ch- uh, chapter one, the faculty that analyzes itself as well as others, namely the faculty of reason. Reason is unique among the faculties assigned to us in being able to evaluate itself, mm-hmm. what it is, what it is capable of, how valuable it is, in addition to passing judgments on others. So it's only appropriate that the gods have given us the best and most efficacious gift, the ability to make good use of of impressions. That's the thing too, right? Like he's not saying, Epictetus isn't saying that animals aren't able to use their impressions of the world. Animals use those impressions of the world that they live in and and how they interact with the world to kind of guide their behaviors. But human beings uniquely have the ability to kind of evaluate those impressions for what they are and determine how those impressions, well, I guess if those impressions are true and false, they use their gift of reason to uh, determine uh, not only if those impressions are true and false, but how to use those impressions too. So he talks a lot about impressions throughout the whole book, and I mentioned it earlier, I think. An impression is just anything that you encounter, right? Uh, It could be you listening to this podcast right now. That's an impression. Uh, Maybe you're driving a car while you're listening to this podcast. Everything you see around you is an impression. The traffic that's in front of you, the decisions you make Mm -hmm. about that traffic, all of that stuff, uh, that's just that's just raw data coming into you, right? 
and it's our ability to use our reasoning faculty. And, and no Stoic really is more forceful about the importance of reason, right? And our ability to do things with that reason than Epictetus. So you take all of those impressions, just like an animal would have those impressions as well, that yet we can decide, like he talks about this throughout the discourses, we can like, even even if we have the opportunity, we can stop and think about those impressions and by using our reason, make the right choices based on what is in our control and what is not in control. And all of that can result in a decision that will cause us little stress Mm -hmm. because we have been able to acknowledge all of the things that can and cannot impede on that particular decision. And then we'll be at peace with that. So, you know, just as if like you're out on the boat on the ocean and terrible weather hits, well, that is an impression. And you know, using your reasoning faculties that you cannot do anything about the weather. Right. As he says, it's not in your control anymore. It's really the captain's problem. (laughs) And you can even use that as an analogy for God if you want to. So anyway, yeah, that's, that reminds me of of Stockdale Mm. again, you know, being shot down. Uh, He's done everything he can possibly do. He has, he has trained thousands of hours of training, flight, all that sort of stuff. Yet he's been hit and there's nothing he can do about that. And so the impression is here I am getting ready to leave the world and go into the world of Epictetus. Another quote that relates is from the Enchiridion chapter five, the first sentence. It's probably one of the more famous Epictetus quotes. It is not events that disturb people. It is their judgments concerning them. And so events you can substitute with impressions, really. Just, it's just makes me laugh because all, all of these quotes are so stoic, like we've been talking about. And, and I think uh, our listeners can, and pro- can probably, especially if they've been listening for the past two weeks, they can, they can just uh, laugh along with me. Just so, such a stoic, such a stoic quote. I think it just goes back to the idea of control. I think that's a huge, huge part of Stoicism. People can work themselves up so much about um, things that they can't control. I do this. I try not to now, and I think I've gotten better about this. But some of my friends, they'll just work themselves up so much about things that they just can't control, and they'll worry about it. And it's probably very mean of me to to say this in the moment because it's probably not comforting at all. But I'm like, you worrying about it's not going to do you any good. You worrying about an exam that you studied for a lot or that you didn't and you bombed. Like you can't do anything about that now. There's no point in worrying about it. There's time to worry about things and there's times not to worry about things too. And I think Epictetus is going to say, okay, if you can control something, well, worry might not be the right word, but you can worry about what you can control. But what you can't control, that's just a waste of your time to worry about. It's interesting how some of this also translates into modern day psychology. People are familiar with cognitive behavioral therapy, which a lot of that is based on Viktor mm-hmm. Frankl, who was uh, a Jew in concentration camp in Auschwitz and managed to live through all of it, wrote a wonderful book called Man's Search for Meaning about his experiences in the concentration camp and how he got through it and how he would help other people get through it. That kind of morphs into this idea of modern psychology today of cognitive behavioral therapy. And a big part of that is like labeling things. Like when you have when you have thoughts that are disturbing, disruptive, whatever, 
cognitive behavioral therapist will say, you need to label those things. And by labeling those things, we kind of pull them out of like the madness of context and the, the swirl of our anxiety. And we're able to look at those things objectively and label it as like, I'm just being overly emotional. It's very, labeling is much more technical. But nonetheless, it helps you get through these particular, as Epictetus would call it, impressions that you're having, or rather the result of those impressions. You're allowing your mind to run away with itself versus using your ability to reason to look at those situations, those impressions, clearly. So Epictetus actually has quite a lot to say about that. So there's kind of a thread of this that goes through a lot of of modern psychotherapy Mm. today. Okay, well, here's one of the more... I don't know if controversial is the right quote, but but this is this one's tough. So this one is all about, again, keeping in mind uh, what you're in control of and what you're not. So this is from the Enchiridion chapter 3. It says, In the case of particular things that delight you or benefit you or which you have grown attached, remind yourself of what they are. Start with things of little value. It is China, if you like, for instance, say, I'm fond of a piece of china, or like a coffee mug, right? I'm fond of, a, of, a, of this particular coffee mug. When it breaks, then you won't be as disconcerted. When giving your wife or child a kiss, repeat to yourself, I am kissing a mortal. <laughs> then you won't be so distraught when they are taken from you. Okay. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> yeah. So I get it. But what's the difference between a coffee mug and your wife or your child, Andrew? Like, is, is there, you know? Uh, <laughs> I'd hope I would, hope. would be. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is just kind of a thing in Epictetus. Sometimes when I read his passages about stuff like this, I just kind of roll my eyes sometimes because I'm like, oh my gosh. But I think it's, I think it's helpful to an extent. I mean, I obviously I'm not going to compare like, like, uh, the breaking of a coffee mug to the death of a loved one. Cause that seems a little bit harsh, but I think that there's value in thinking about things that you have and what those things are in relation to yourself and then thinking about how how you might be without those things and how those are going to really impact you. Maybe an example. This is not a great example, but say I have this rock that I, I'm very fond of. Maybe I've had this rock forever and it has a lot of significance to me or something. And then say like one day, they don't do this at my school, but hypothetically, let's say that they do say that like a janitor or someone walks into my room and is like cleaning around it and uh, they pick up the rock. Yeah, that's going to, that's going to kind of suck. That rock had a lot of personal significance to me, but if I'm thinking about this item, well, you know, I'm not even doing such a great job of explaining it right now. Cause I'm, I feel like I'm just rehashing what he's saying. I think it makes a lot of sense thinking about things and appreciating them for what they are in reference to what they will be when they're gone. You know, we're, we're talking about two different things here, a coffee mug and a human being, especially a human being that's very personally important to you. We can definitely get attached to objects uh, because we do attach or we do associate a particular amount of significance to particular objects. And some are more important than others, especially when sentimentality comes in. And so like, you know, you drop your favorite coffee mug that you got on a trip with these special people how many ever years ago, and that's very sad to you, which is very different than like your spouse passing away. And and I think about, you know, like, oh, wow, like, what is the difference in the quality of my life if, say, I dropped my favorite coffee mug that have lots of sentimentality attached to it uh, versus like my wife dying? And like, those are two very dramatically different 
would impact my life in a very different way. And so I'm like, like, how much like quality of life do each of those things add to my experience? You know, that coffee mug's really cool and great, 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 great memories when I use it. But golly, if my wife died, holy cow, like, like the, the quality of the, how that would affect the, my quality of life seems enormous. And so there I'm like, I'm like, I, I get like not totally losing your mind if your child or your wife dies and not like losing yourself just in your headspace about all that. You know, does Epictetus allow for you to be like sad, though, is kind of is kind of what I th- I think about sometimes. Like, are we just supposed to be so stoic about this? We're like, uh, you know, <laughs> we had a good run, but now she's gone. So, you know, I guess I'll go make some breakfast. So I don't know that, that, that that's where I fall with stoicism. Like, like, does it allow for things like, like we can be sad about this? I, this is probably not right, but maybe this is like a neo 21st century version of, of this idea. I think about this with my parents too, all the, all the time. Maybe I'm having like a really bad headache on a day or something, and the last thing I want to do is talk to anybody. Maybe it's a, a day of classes when I've been uh, chewed out for not reading as closely as I should have, or I fell off my bike or something. I don't know. And the last thing I want to do is like have a conversation with someone. I just want to uh, go go back in my room and and sleep or something. I'm not going to have an unlimited opportunity to talk to my parents always or things like that. You know, that idea always keeps me very grounded. Even if I'm not in like the mood right now, I, I think about things like that. And I think it's, I think it's very, very grounding mm-hmm. even with my time in school too, right? I only have a year left. I think, you know, well, I'm only going to have some days I don't want to go hang out with my friends because I, I want to work on a paper or something. And then I'm like, oh, you know, I only have a year left with these guys. Uh, there's going to be a day coming up very soon where I'm going to say, bye, see y'all. And I'll probably never see most of them again. And I think it's just a very grounding thing to think about when you're thinking about it like that. I think the one thing that stands out for me when I think about stoicism, and I hope that we've communicated well, is that Stoicism is a philosophy of living, one, and it's meant to be a practical one. It's meant to improve your your life. We could have spent this series going into the metaphysical reasons for why uh, these Stoic thinkers believe that a reason is, is something that's unique to humans or blah, 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 whatever, but it's fundamentally at its core a way of improving your life and focusing on things that matter. I think it's it's a good lesson for for anybody, not just for philosophers, but take some time, think about what matters to you. And I think, I think that can reorient your life because at the end of the day, it's not about uh, how much money you're making, anything like that. And I, I'm just going to quietly pan out here because I don't want to sound like a Joel Osteen guy right now. Stoicism of all the philosophies of life. Yeah, I have some, some questions about it, but I find it to be tremendously helpful in a lot of situations. Mm. And, you know, again, I, I think you know, a lot of these philosophies of life that we talk about have, have definitely stood the test of time. So I, I don't think like the test of time test is necessarily a good way to gauge the appropriateness or success of a f- particular philosophy of life. Some are much newer, like existentialism, of course, but something as old as uh, Eastern traditions like Taoism and Confucianism and some of those. And as far as the philosophy of life goes, Stoicism has 
been around for a long time and comes in and out of popularity and seems like, especially in times of crises, stoicism rises up again. And I think there's probably a reason for that. You know, a lot of people when COVID began and we were in the lockdown stage, sales of Marcus Aurelius kind of like <laughs> topped out in the in the publishing market and lots of attention to that. And I think that says something about perhaps some of the good things that come from stoicism and, and how it's also, you know, woven into the modern day psychotherapy that we talked about and probably something to it, you know, mm. maybe we don't kiss our children goodbye at the uh, when we leave house for the day and be like, ah, could die. But there's probably lots of other helpful things about yeah. that as well. Yeah. Well, let me read some some of what I think are Epictetus's funny quotes and then we'll then we'll call it an episode. I already read the one about his nose running. So here's a couple other. And try to think of it like a a grumpy old teacher. All right. And you're trying to come up with excuses. All right, so here's one. If you have your heart set on wearing crowns, why not make one out of roses? You'll look even more elegant in that. Probably something there about like reputation or whatever, wearing crowns. Oh, let's just make one out of roses there, buddy. You look prettier in it. So there's that one. Then I like this one. Wouldn't you rather leave petty arguments about these subjects to do nothings who said and come and receive their little stipend or get nothing done and whine about it? Step forward and make use of what you've learned. You, you, you hear the word whining a lot in his uh, discourses. You don't put up with whining. Uh, and this last one, which I, I, for some reason just strikes me as funny. So let's see some evidence of it. But no, it's as if I were to say to an athlete, show me your shoulders. And he responds with, well, have a look at my weights. Get out of here with you and your gigantic weights, I'd say. What I want to see isn't the weights, but how you've profited from using them. So there's just a sassy little tone to, uh, to Epictetus and and that kind of makes him fun to read as well. I think if people pick up his discourses, other than learning some great stoicism, they'll be entertained at the same time. He's definitely a funny guy. All of all of those are very, very stoic. Very, uh, of course, they're stoic. They're very funny. They make me think of like Yoda and uh, Star Wars whacking whacking Luke with uh, a snake oh, with his cane. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Well, this is it. This is the end. This is the end of our four-part series on Stoicism. Hope everyone has enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. And I hope that everybody has at least learned a, a tiny little bit about, about Stoicism, Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, and Seneca, and uh, feel inspired to continue researching into their lives and works. Yeah, in fact, you might say it's the death of this series. Uh, but like Epictetus says, don't worry about that death. Uh, go out there and like Andrew says, go out there and continue researching and reading up on these uh, on these stoic thinkers. And, you know, you'll benefit greatly from those. We'd like to thank you all for listening, of course, and passing along Open Door Philosophy to all your friends and neighbors and even those strangers you meet on the street. They won't know why you're telling them to listen to this podcast, but, you know, it'll be okay. They don't need the context. <laughs> yeah, they don't. Uh, but we would love the context. You can uh, uh, email us at opendoorphilosophy at gmail.com with any quotes, ideas, criticism, feedback, uh, anything fun. We'll very stoically take it. Yeah, we just really, really love uh, hearing from everybody. We haven't done the quote corner in a while, but um, I'm sure that's going to come back uh, sometime soon. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see where fortune takes us. <laughs> 
Uh, thanks once again, of course, to our good buddy Kevin McLeod for his for use of his music. It's so groovy. And I think that's it. Anything else, Andrew? Plug, that's it, plug, right? We plug the it. socials. Oh, plug the socials. Yes, yes. We're everywhere. We're so everywhere. We're on the Twitter. You can find me at D underscore Parsonage. Uh, we got an Instagram. And, of course, opendoorphilosophy.com, where you can find resources, a list of resources, and certainly we provide links for things such as uh, Epictetus's Discourses, which will be a link on the website this week. So check all that out. Well, this is the end once again. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. See you in two weeks. And remember, when your life is in need of some philosophy, the door is always open. Thanks. See ya. See ya.